from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 35, Godzilla Final Wars. Fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherchel. And today we will be talking about the final entry in the Millennium series and what will be, would end up being the final entry in the Godzilla series for at least 10 years Godzilla Final Wars. Yes, we have finally hit our first internet age. Godzilla film. Very, very different and interesting. And this is our second outlier of the Millennium series besides GMK. And even this is very different from GMK. (laughs) Very. Our related topic for this episode is Abenomics. But first we have our original signature five minute film description. Take it away, Brian. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is an angry force of nature. The protagonists release him from his icy prison to fight the Zillions. He's had a long-standing feud with humanity because they made a terrible fire that burned the land. Earth kaiju controlled by the Zillions include Rodan, Angurus, Zilla, King Caesar, Kamakaris, Kumunga, Ebira, and Hetera. Manda appears before the Zillions do and is killed by the Gotengo. The Zillions also control Gigan, a sadistic cyborg kaiju, and Monster X slash Kaiser Ghidorah, a malicious space monster. Mothra benevolently protects Earth from the Zillions. Minya is a friendly baby kaiju trying to find Godzilla and keep him from attacking humanity. Shinji Ozaki is a compassionate and proficient mutant soldier in the Earth Defense Force, fighting the Zillions and trying to free his fellow mutants from their control. Miyuki Otanashi, a cynical and intelligent molecular biologist, discovers that Gigan has M-Base in his DNA and later helps to fight the invaders. Captain Douglas Gordon is the gruff, battle-hardened commander of the Gotengo, determined to defeat Godzilla and later the Zillions. Miyuki's sister, Anna Otanashi, is an observant and intrepid reporter who discovers that Zillions are masquerading as humans. The violent and elitist Kazuma is Ozaki's fellow mutant soldier who wishes only to embrace his instincts to fight. The controller of Planet X is the evil leader of the Zillions, intent on conquering Earth to harvest human mitochondria for food. There's a moderately high intermix between the kaiju plotline and human plotline. While the characters are at first preoccupied when battling the monsters, the Zillions take center stage for most of the second act. After that, the humans fight the Zillions by fighting the kaiju or enlisting their help in the conflict. The protagonists attempt to solve one problem with another problem, by freeing Godzilla and guiding him to the Zillion mothership. After Godzilla defeats Gigan, he neutralizes or kills kaiju controlled by the Zillions on his way to Tokyo. When Godzilla arrives, the Zillions summon a second Gigan and Monster X to fight Godzilla. Mothra joins the fight and sacrifices herself to kill the second Gigan. After the Zillion mothership is destroyed, Monster X morphs into Kaiser Ghidorah and attacks Godzilla, draining his life force. The problem is solved when Ozaki transfers his Kaiser energy to Godzilla to restore his strength. 
Godzilla then eliminates Kaiser Ghidorah. Minya arrives and stands between Godzilla and the protagonist to plea for him to forgive humanity. In response, Godzilla walks away and returns to the ocean. The screenplay by Isao Kiriyama and director Ryuhei Kitamura from a story by Wataru Mimura and producer Shogo Tomiyama is a somewhat complex story with multiple characters and several subplots, but everything is connected and comes together by the end. The film had a budget of 2 billion yen, approximately $20 million, some of which was Kitamura's own money, making this one of the most expensive Japanese Godzilla films. And it shows. Special effects director Eiichi Asada once again made extensive use of practical tokusatsu effects, suitmation, puppets, marionettes, etc., over CGI for most of the film's 14 kaiju. All of the suits look excellent, especially Godzilla, Gigan, and Monster X. The monster's sizes were scaled up to create less detailed miniatures to save money, but the work still looks quite good. The mostly effective CGI was limited to the insect kaiju, kaiju in flight, and ships and airplanes. This was the first movie in the Godzilla series to be made using video technology instead of film, which may have reduced the quality of the picture. This is a light film with a moderate amount of gravity due to its potent themes and the serious threat posed by the zillions. Even with all of the over-the-top sci-fi trappings, or perhaps because of them, it's a fantasy film. Like GMK before it, this is an outlier in the Millennium series. It's the only G-film that's a stylized, hyperkinetic action movie. It has the most human action of any entry in the franchise, and bold reimaginings of the zillions. It's also the only Japanese Godzilla film to be scored by a non-Japanese composer, the late Keith Emerson, who is English. The film reinforces the style of Invasion of Astro Monster with its alien invasion story and by featuring the Zillions, among other things. Likewise, it's essentially a remake of Destroy All Monsters. Toho wanted to create a massive monster mash to celebrate Godzilla's 50th anniversary. Kitamura sought to create a new film in the style of the 1970s Godzilla movies, saying they combined relevant themes with straight-out entertainment. Being an anniversary film, he combined multiple elements in a new way creating something he likened to a best-of album. Unfortunately, the film underperformed at the box office. After its world premiere at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Los Angeles, it was released in Japan December 4, 2004, grossing an unprofitable 1.26 billion yen, or about $12 million, and selling only 1 million tickets thanks to competition with Howl's Moving Castle and The Incredibles. Sony released it in the U.S. on DVD in 2005 and on Blu-ray in 2014. It's received mixed reviews from fans. There are many forces at play. Fate versus Free Will is debated by Kazuma and Ozaki, the former saying that mutants were born to fight and the latter preferring to protect others. Generational conflict is seen between the Zillion commander, who prefers to use peaceful and clandestine methods to conquer Earth, and the young controller, who prefers swift and outright displays of power. The M organization trains mutants as soldiers to attack kaiju. The Zillions deceive humanity with a hologram of the meteor Gorath and disguise themselves as human leaders to form the space nations. The most prominent theme is a statement first made by the Shobajin to Ozaki. You have evil inside you, but you can choose what you become. Ozaki reassures Miyuki that she isn't useless and that her knowledge will be needed after the war. Kazuma, moved by Ozaki's compassion, sacrifices himself to bring down the alien mothership's shield. While fighting the controller, Ozaki says, We're not cattle, we're humans, speaking to human dignity. Thanks to the intervention of Minya, Godzilla chooses to forgive humanity for the wrong they committed against him. This concludes part one of the podcast. 
You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion of the film that we are covering this week. Although, Brian, I I think we're both going to be pretty nice to this one. We've talked about this movie just like we've talked about all of these movies in a huge amount of detail and degree off of this podcast as well. But yeah, I really like this overall. I only have a few complaints. It's 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 pretty good. Something like this is a lot like the other millennial movies. There's they they needed to be made. I unabashedly love this movie, which I'm sure if I was playing the odds, about half of our listeners are probably thinking you're crazy and the other half are saying right on. But ever since the first time I saw this, I have just thoroughly enjoyed it. I actually found it on a Walmart shelf my during my senior year of college. I had been having a bad couple of months, and so I watched it, and just it was a nice breath of fresh air. And I immediately invited my friend Scott over to watch it, who's also a Godzilla fan. He loved it. And then when I went home for Christmas break, I showed it to another friend of mine named Bill, who is not a Godzilla fan, but he loves anime. And I told him, dude, this is like live action anime (laughs) and I showed it to him and he loved it. So I really don't understand. Well, I guess I can understand some of the criticisms people have of this movie, but I don't under, I don't get why it's so divisive. It seems more divisive than it could have been, but I don't know. The first time I saw this movie, I had mixed feelings just because the human plot of this is a bit long and there's a lot of the third act. It's rather there are places where the, the human action is just slowed down and it's sort of like, I get it already. But the, the but the first time I felt like I'd sort of been hit by a train because I didn't, ex- I didn't know what to expect. Then I watched it a few more times in which I've seen this movie so many times now. I don't even know how many, but I have a lot different opinion than when I first watched it. I like it a lot more. I understand what the purpose was. I understand what they were trying to get at it with. It is very much like live anime. That's what I thought too, but it's almost also like a live video game. (laughs) Yeah. At times it's also like a live comic book, which we got that with Godzilla versus Gigan. That was, uh, there were a lot of comic book sort of, actions and, and the way that things looked and stuff like and the then the plot the way the story was put together mm-hmm. a lot of it was like a comic book and some of the imagery we remarked looked like stuff you would see in a comic book mm-hmm. and like i said this seems to be the first internet age godzilla movie and the internet had been around for a few years before this movie but it, it seems like this movie captured a lot of what the internet is like now oh yeah even <laughs> it, it anticipated that in fact but compared to all our previous Godzilla movies, this is completely and totally different, except it's, like we said, it's Destroy All Monsters, but but at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that's new. There's a lot of the, the way that they present it. But I, that's actually not surprising. The Kitamura, the, the director on this, was uh, known for doing a lot of manga adaptations with his previous movies. Probably the one besides this that he's best known for is this cult film called Versus. I have not I read seen about it. that. Yeah, I've not seen it. I watched a couple trailers for it on YouTube, and it's this weird supernatural action movie. Looks like it was put together on a low budget, but they worked really hard on the fight choreography, I can tell you that. So at some point, I would like to see it at least once, just to kind of get a feel for what Kitamura had been doing. 
And he's he's directed a couple of American films as well. Uh, he did a, a horror film called the, the Midnight Meat Train in 2008, which is based off of a Clive Barker story. Oh. Even though it doesn't feel as cinematic, though, I really do like how this feels like a 70s film a lot of the time. It's good in that way. It's also, it's low on dialogue. It's higher on action. And it, it fills in yet another part of the, like another piece of the pie in the Godzilla series where you, you get a high action movie. This is as far away from the Heisei movies as we've gotten yet. Yeah. Too. And, <laughs> yeah. There, and you notice there aren't any original monsters from the Heisei series in this at all. I, yeah. And I, th- they talked about doing destroyer or something, but then they didn't. Yeah. And that's no surprising because the Kitamura was a huge fan of the Showa series in particular, the the seventies era because he didn't like the the movies from the eighties and the nineties because he thought that they got away from being both straight up entertainment and having relevant themes in the films. So I feel it seems like he thought that the Showa series, in particular the seventies movies, strike the best balance between the two. And there's one thing that probably nobody is going to call this movie, and that's boring. Oh no, this movie's not boring and. It's just like the 70s movies. A lot of them are, all of them are much more on the entertaining side. There's a lot of action, explosions, fires, all this stuff going on. But there's a lot of stuff happening. There isn't just a lot of plot elements hanging around that's like, oh, that's an interesting idea. And then it moves on to something else in the next scene. It's more coherent. Despite how crazy it gets. (laughs) Yeah. And you still know what's going on all the time. You don't. And it doesn't feel like that the human plot and the monster plot are two different movies. Oh, yeah. It feels like they're the same movie. <laughs> Sometimes when I watch this, I wonder if this is Michael Bay's favorite Godzilla movie. <laughs> yeah. It, it's almost like it was made for fans of the new newer movies that were coming out in the late 90s, early 2000s that were like really heavy action, but also just CGI starting to be thrown in. Mm-hmm. I've often wanted to describe this particular movie as a... And this is why I don't understand why fan, why some fans have such a huge beef with it, is I felt like from the first time I saw it, it was this valentine to Godzilla fans that had been infused with with Red Bull or Monster, which, by the way... Or sugar in yeah, general. Yeah, Somebody which, talked about it being a sugar high, this, yeah. like Godzilla on a sugar high. Which, by the way, I got to say... Why hasn't the Monster Energy Drink Company thought about making a drink called Kaiju? I mean, seriously, yeah, that would sell, especially with all the Pacific Rim stuff going on now. <laughs> I know. Kaiju seems like such a hard word. Like, n- very few people know it. If you go up to an average person, they have no idea. They're like, what's a Kaiju? Huh? And, and I, I, I still encounter people that are like this, but it's, it just seems like a hard w- word for some reason. And I wish it wasn't because that's the best word to use. Yeah. And like Pacific Rim, they had to define the word at the beginning. Yeah. Of that <laughs> in the original Pacific Rim film. So, yeah, <laughs> whatever. I wish it was easier. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Moving on. I really like how this movie goes into the future, just like Destroy All Monsters did. Destroy All Monsters went 31 years into the future, roughly. And then this movie... It takes place in 2044, so it'd be 40 years in the future. Yeah. This is the first time since Destroy All Monsters that they've gone that far, and it sort of increases the, I guess, sci-fi bona fides of, of this movie 
Um, Because generally in sci-fi, you wouldn't be going further ahead in time than what most of all these kaiju movies have ever been. Which kaiju movies, they are not like sci-fi in that they take place like... In the Millennial series, it's been, what, like a year in the future? Something like that. Two years in the future. Yeah, it's in the soon-to-be future, as opposed to, like, Star Trek, etc. Where it's it's a couple hundred years. A couple hundred, yeah. And so this is maybe one of the biggest jumps forward in time that any of these Godzilla movies have done, which is 40 years. And that's really the high bound for the futuristic sci-fi elements. Yeah, I think aside from a couple of quick scenes in Godzilla versus King Ghidorah in 91 that are supposed to be in the future and then our villains coming from the future. Yeah, this is the farthest ahead any of these have ever gone. Yeah, as far as setting mm-hmm. because the setting for uh Ghidorah 91 was 1990 1992. Two, yeah. And speaking of futuristic stuff, I really like how the future looks in this movie. They yes. decided to give they gave us these colors of the sky that are like brown and red yeah, very and very warm sort of colors, oranges and reds and browns. And are they trying to imply that there's a bunch of pollution? <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> They're like, oh, it. They they might be right. It's maybe a more creepy, realistic future than we realize. <laughs> but yeah, it's. I didn't notice that the outside looks drab. Or and during a couple of our scenes, the weather is like really sunny. Yeah. But it, it's uh, it's interesting how they do that. But especially, really, the costumes. The yes. costuming for this is nice. I like pretty much everything that everybody's wearing in this movie. <laughs> it seems it all seems to fit in its own zany nineteen seventies yeah. callback kind of way. <laughs> it's it's fun like that. I like I love the Zillions uniforms. That's all- totally calling back to. <laughs> this movie is full of references, but obviously Trinity. Etc. From, uh, from the uh, Matrix. The Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> I would. I all was, the capes, the, all the yes. gestures of the capes, and Although, all the stuff. They had the little visors a couple yeah. of times, so yeah. that was a callback to the original Zillions. Uh, these and then z- the Zillion commander that our controller of Planet X kills. Yeah. The, with the, uh, that's really Matrixy. Too. Yeah. I, the, these Zillions look like they shop at Hot Topic. <laughs> yeah, they do. And and the, but the our our protagonists have interesting. I like Outfits. the mutant costumes. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, and the, the, those look like the X Men uniforms from the from the early X Men. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The early yeah, X Men. Our movies. fight scene that we begin mm-hmm. with. Yeah, that the uniforms that they're wearing. Yeah, th- those are nice. It's an interesting take on the future, and it's something different, at least, as and, opposed to the, like the the eighties and early nineties clothes and some of these Heisei movies, yeah. like the oversized <laughs> suit jackets and the ugh. Yeah, fashion was so wrong back then. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway. and and as with uh, several of the women in these uh, in these Godzilla movies, the Miyuki has a really snazzy jacket. The second half of the movie mm-hmm. that the red that glossy red, yeah, yeah like bright bright red Come jacket. Think of I it. I love that thing. I didn't even think about this in the references. I don't know if you had it on your list or not. But did Blade Runner come across this one? Actually, now that I think about it, the clothing, especially yes. the clothing, I hadn't that, thought of that. Like the ra- remember the raincoats that they yes. wore in uh, Blade Runner. Yes, in eighty two, you know how much of an influence that movie had with oh, that movie. Fashion, had an, that movie had an influence art and architecture on everything. And, yeah, 
But I I just now thought of that. That's that what makes that costuming looks like. Huh. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but it still looks good. Hey, if you're if they're if they were imitating Blade Runner, then go for it. Yeah. If you're gonna imitate something, imitate something good. Yeah. <laughs> One indication that you can tell Kitamura is a fan is that he spent some of his own money on this movie. Yeah. That's, that's the mark of a true fan right there. And it showed that he really believed in what he was doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't think of there aren't very many directors who would be willing to do something like that. And I applaud him for doing it. It's not like we said with a couple of these movies, it dared to be different. This dared to be different. And they didn't end up making all the money back. And so it's it's a true sacrifice on his part. And every once in a while, you, you want to take a risk and you want to spend some money on something. And this is one of those movies that if you're going to spend the extra money on, make it this one. Yeah. I wonder, though, if much like the other finale movies, we'll call it, if this one underperformed when it was released, but then people either discovered it or f- learned to appreciate it more later. I feel like that's been a common trend with a lot of these. This is the one that people get a hold of on the internet or whatever. You know, they, they download it or they it's on um, on-demand cable or if it's on, you know, However, or if they can stream it, if it's in a, if it's in a streaming library, however, they're able to do it. This is one of those ones that I'd be glad if they got a hold of this and because maybe it'll get them more interested in the Godzilla universe as a whole. And because this movie is cheesy on purpose at times and and it's entertaining in that way, I feel like the Americans can relate to this movie much more strongly than they can relate to a whole lot of other movies in the entire franchise. The opening scene where the Gotengo is fighting against Manda, we, we get that moment when Don Fry is there as captain, and then he is simply speaking English. And then the Japanese speakers, who are, which is everybody else, they're all speaking Japanese. He understands their Japanese. They understand his English. And it is is perfect. That's how you, that's really how you should be doing all of these movies from here on out. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. I guess if you're thinking that it's, you know, if you want to put yourself inside the movie or whatever, but the thing is, would we really have them using universal translation software? (laughs) No, because it's a movie and it's not real and people are watching it. And so why would we dub him or why like Nick Adams and Astro monster? Yes. Because I feel like if they had done this in Astro monster, it would have been great. I wish there was an edit of this movie uh, of Astro monster. That was like that. Yeah. Instead of me having to decide, do I want to listen to the dub or do I want to listen to the Japanese? Cause I want to hear Nick Adams. Yeah. And I don't want to hear Nick Adams dubbed and I don't want to hear the Japanese dubbed. And so I, I want the best of both worlds. And that, that's what this movie gives us. And it makes total sense. Also, if this guy is working with, with the Japanese all the time anyway, he's going to understand them. Mm-hmm. And plus, it takes place in the future. I, w- I would think that th- there would be more use to this than any other time. Yeah. Well, and there's precedent for doing a technique like this. Watch any of the Star Wars movies. All the human characters are speaking English and all the aliens speak in whatever their language is. 
even in the original Star Wars movie. I'm thinking of the scene between Han and Greedo, and Han speaking English. Greedo is saying whatever he does, and it gets subtitled for the audience, and then we, he, they just talk to each other. They understand each other. Yeah. It's simpler that way. Yeah. There's no explanation about why. It's just how the world works. Yeah, and you're not going to dub Don Fry. What's the purpose of having Don Fry even <laughs> in the movie? I mean, the look, yeah, but his voice is so important that why would you dub him? Who would dub him? I don't think anybody How? can dub Don Fry. <laughs> no, you're not going to find, at least not easily, someone in Japan who's going to be able to do his exact voice. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> even in America, that's hard to do. It feels natural to the viewer. Yeah, but on a related note... There's a fair amount of English being spoken by our Japanese actors as well. And for the most part, they actually sound pretty good. Yeah. I wonder if part of that is because Kitamura actually spent a lot of time in Sydney, Australia. Because I've I've read that he can speak English fluently. Mm -hmm. So when he goes to places like conventions and all that in the United States, he doesn't need a translator. Right. The soundtrack in this film is... Really different. We've had some techno stuff before, but this is in a whole other realm compared to those other techno uh, tracks that we've had. It sounds modern. Very modern. For the most part, bringing back the regular Ikafube music wouldn't really work with this. You want something that'll that's more current. And then plus, plus and so Keith Emerson's music was great. The other God music, rest his soul. <laughs> yeah. The music that the other Japanese composers made mixed in well with it. And the the music from some 41. <laughs> that's, that's the most unprecedented thing in, yes. any, in any of Now it fits the in the thing. scene that it's in. Absolutely. It does. And, and why was it put in there? This is sort of a, a sh this whole movie in a way is a shout out to the Americans mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And it, it, Westerners. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of elements in this movie that I think are would be very appealing to Americans and to Westerners. And I attribute that, again, to Kitamura spending a lot of his formative years in Sydney, Australia. So I think he has a better grasp of what appeals to people outside of Japan. And the things that they would want to see and the things that they'd be interested in and movies that they just saw, which includes stuff like The Matrix Etc. Yeah. yeah, all of these movies that were in the collective American mind, because the American collective mind of movies is so extensive and so um, vast, to say the least. The main reason, though, why they put Sum 41 in this is because Sum 41 was pretty popular in Japan. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, so some music, it, it goes, it transfers over to Japan. Some music transfers over better than others. I like how this movie integrates Atragon and Gorath, even just a little. It's nice to reference them. Gorath especially is one of my favorites of Japanese tokusatsu. It's, it's nice to have a callback to that. And then, of course, Atragon with the look of these all these Gotengo-style, all these Atragon-style ships. You know, and, and I love that thing. <laughs> they look great. It's better than just yet another submarine... Let's integrate something from the Toho universe in instead. Let's make them fly, too. Oh, yeah. The, the, <laughs> sure. The Gotengo is one of the coolest sci-fi vehicles ever. I mean, it's... it's and it's the future, yeah. too. So, yeah, absolutely. In integrate this in, and it, it works perfectly. I mean, 
Uh, come on, the Gotengo is a flying submarine with a drill on the front. Wh- how cool is that? <laughs> which leads into one of my first uh, one of my sp- first specific likes in this movie, which is uh, the opening credit sequence, which is showing all of these clips of different Toho Tokusatsu films with a timeline that's counting down to 2004. Yeah, and, and there's even a little clip from Space Amoeba. I know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, they, it's a nice um, way to set the stage. Mm-hmm. You can tell that it sets the stage right at the beginning that this is a celebration of the Godzilla franchise and also, to some extent, Toho Tokusatsu. The opening credits, the first initial scene burying Godzilla in the ice and everything, that's great, too. But my greatest first like on this timeline would be a 514. And that's where Manda has been destroyed. And then immediately Kumi Mizuno shows up on the screen and Don Fry swears, which is wonderful. <laughs> the swearing in this movie is wonderful, by the way. It's, it's not gratuitous and it's in the exact right places that you want it to be. It, that that's the that's the thing with swearing is if you, if it's in the right place and it's it it comes off perfectly and if it's the right actor, yeah, which it definitely works with Don Fry. <laughs> then then he tells her you know keep your mouth shut and all and all this and she pounds her fist a little bit on the table and she's furious and it, it sets up the comedy it sets up the characters mm-hmm. really well. You want to hear something cool? That character that she plays, her name is Akiko Namikawa. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is that when they when they mention how Captain Gordon was uh, court-martialed and put in jail, that part, um, they they mentioned that the reason why he was in jail was the reason that he struck his superior officer in court. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, isn't that Kumi Mizuno? <laughs> It is, isn't it? Oh, that, she was. It, it, it's already been established that she's the superior officer. To oh him. man! <laughs> it's like, what did, he, did he slap Kumi Mizuno's character in court? Oh no! <laughs> like, oh, that's kind of awful if you, when you if you stop and think about it. Yeah, I was like, wait, did which who but, did he who did he strike exactly? But that would make sense because that if that's the case, it comes back at the end of the movie because <laughs> the zillion woman he's fighting. He he raises his fist yeah. to punch her. He's like, yeah. you'd hit a lady? Then he just yeah. says, yeah, then unfurls his fist and slaps her. Another huge plus with this movie specifically is Masahiro Matsuoka and his expressions on his face, especially <laughs> the cheesy ones. The, 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 him gritting his, his teeth and, uh, and, and it's almost like a Keanu Reeves he looks like he I thought about Keanu Reeves immediately when I saw him and his method of acting <laughs> and his cheesiness in general. It, I mean, there's a whole I mean, the Matrix is definitely the biggest yes. influence on this from start to finish. It was a big influence on everybody at this time. Right. And so that it made me think of Keanu automatically. But also his expressions remind me of Keanu. I mean, the hair. Yes. It's a little bit like Keanu as well. <laughs> But he's funny. He's his expressions are absolutely perfect for this movie, and so it's just uh, I really like his just about everything about his character and the way he acts. I also really like the guy that plays the uh, controller of Planet X. He, <laughs> he is so is, over the top. He's over the top. But <laughs> did you see what? How many other things he's done? 
No, I have not. What else has he done? He's been in a lot of stuff. (laughs) And so he was a pretty well-established actor at this time, even. But he's, uh, it's, he's pretty good. His dope, the way he acts that when, when the, uh, when all these monsters are getting killed and he keeps (laughs) failing. The tantrums he throws. Yeah. These little tantrums and yeah, I like it. (laughs) He actually has one of my favorite lines in the movie, but I'll save that for later. (laughs) But he's, he's so wonderfully insane. (laughs) He's a far cry from our original controller. Especially towards the end, with with his eyebrows and the hair. Yeah, his hair and everything gets a little bit spiky. Like I am anime y- power up mode yeah, again. It, you know? Yeah, he's uh, that's awesome. His, the the way he gets more unhinged and more uh, flustered as it goes on. Well, it's and, just good. And w- one of my favorite moments is actually it's one of the subtler signs that he's coming on uh, coming unglued which is saying a lot because he tends to just be very over the top and that is when after Ozaki gets his little Kaiser power up and he he runs at him and try to uh, to attack him and he, and he just like palm punches him in the face and he has this look like oh my god yeah. he just did he just actually hit me did he just mm-hmm. <laughs> he's so confused i love it yeah and you have to have pretty much almost anime style of acting. I wonder if they just told them act like you're in an anime. <laughs> it would make sense. The, all the bluster, the bravado and <laughs> yeah, the he, arrogance. My gosh, he's so arrogant. <laughs> yeah. We, we barely even need to mention Don Fry anymore. I mean, everything that he says and does in this movie is great. It's just, and the fact that he's a pro amazing. wrestler too. Yeah. He has this quiet charisma to him. He's not being over the top like the controller, but he, he so he's a much quieter man. But there's this there's this thing about him. Some people would say he isn't that great of an actor, but for what he does, he does really well. He seems to capture the American military personality that mm-hmm. we see in, in movies, but I've also seen in real life. Mm-hmm. And, and that is just we need to do this and it's going to be tough, but we're going to do it. It's, it's that attitude. He His attitude is so good in this. But one of the things that's so cool about him is he has a katana. Yeah, which that's makes a, it even more awesome. That's I know, something I, I had written in my it's just a, It's like a weird juxtaposition. You know, he's he's an American. He's very American. But then he has a katana. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it just makes him that much cooler. <laughs> and I love his look, too. Uh, my, friend, my friend Bill, when I showed him this movie, he said that Don Fry looked like Mike Hager from the Final Fight games. Yeah. He's this big dude with the mustache. Did you get any um, vibes from, like, M. Bison? I can see that. A little from bit. Street Fighter? A little bit. I can see that. There's a little bit of that. Don Fry also has my Captain Gordon. He's my favorite character in this movie, and he has my favorite line in the entire movie. It's in the scene when he's talking with all the other Japanese characters, and he's telling them, here's our plan. You know, we're going to go get Godzilla and all of that sort of stuff. And he says, and this is my friend Scott's favorite line in the movie, too. He says, the world is ruined and the war is already lost. Now it's a matter of pride. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, his lines particularly pop quite well. Oh, yes. Besides Kumi Mizuno, we have a few other Godzilla veterans coming back in this film to celebrate the anniversary. Yes, Akira Takarada. Oh, yes. <laughs> and and again, with the outfits, great suit. That there. is an amazing and, suit. Yeah, his little interview. 
but it, he wears the same thing, I think. And but, the sunglasses. Yeah, and it's just uh, f- very futuristic, and then he's wearing these almost sort of futuristic glasses, even. Like, it's just the whole costume is neat looking. Mm-hmm. And then Kenji Sahara came back to mm-hmm. as the as our paleontologist when they discover Gigan, mm-hmm. and then uh, he's also in on it when um, they're having their the little vision from the Shobajin. Yeah, they 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 trip out a little bit and then they, they go uh, visit, <laughs> go visit the Infant Island mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, interestingly, I, I looked it up. Those are actually the same actresses from Tokyo SOS. Oh, I was a little surprised that they got haircuts. <laughs> yeah, but it's good to see these veteran actors come back. And they they do quite a bit. Yeah, especially Takarada. Yeah, he's uh, does a lot of stuff throughout the film in this. He's still a supporting character, but he gets mm-hmm. to do a lot. Yeah, and, and he and Kumi Mizuno get to actually fire their own guns and mm-hmm. participate in the in our sort of matrixy scene in the hallway there. Mm-hmm. Which and it's very appropriate that they have Takarada in this because he's been in a lot of these Godzilla movies, including the original, and he's done a lot of Tokusatsu. And he came back in one of the Heisei movies, too. And so you want to have him mm-hmm. come back in a Millennium Series movie. which Because that's a trademark of the Millennium Series, is bringing back the veterans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we had Yuriko Hoshi in uh, our 2000 film, uh, Megagiris. Mm-hmm. And that was really nice, too. One of the coolest things that Takarada does in this is there's there comes a point where they figure out that the zillions who are masquerading as humans never blink. And they specifically bring it up in the context talking about Takarada's character because they think he's been replaced. And it's a detail I always forget about before they bring it up whenever I watch this movie. And I keep wanting to go back and watch every scene that Takarada and any of these other zillion interlopers are in just to see how well they pay attention to that. Yeah, after the initial monster attack, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, some scenes, they, they did kind of cheat a little bit through the magic of editing or the, the cinematography, how they set up the shot so you don't have to worry about it as much. But still, I, I'm impressed that they were able to pull something like that off. It's an original idea, too. I've never heard that being used as a plot element before. And it's an interesting... They're not blinking. And it, it seems very... It seems like something you, that's really natural, actually, to, to think of. But it's not something I don't know if I would have thought of on my own. Yeah, and it's it's a nice, subtle giveaway. Because they mm-hmm. even talk about because they're looking at this video, and I remember the first time I watched this movie, and they're saying, you, you see anything wrong with this? And I was like, all the characters, like, Yeah, I no. didn't. Th- yeah, the first time I said, saw it, I was he like, He never no. blinks. Yeah. It's like, oh, oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, Clever and, movie. Clever. And, <laughs> and they even made sure that the audience was on the same page because they said everybody does, even if it's not very often, they still do. Mm-hmm. You know, some people blink more often than others, but it's still something that everybody has to do. Yeah. So be warned, Akira Takarada will beat you at a staring contest. Yeah. <laughs> if not, his editor will help. Yes. I really like how there are dogs in this movie. We haven't had any dogs in any of these movies yet. Not that I can think of. No. I like it, though. It seems... Like some, maybe it's just another thing that they thought, oh, well, we haven't done this before, so let's do it. And make it a plot point yeah. as well, because it's used to reveal that the secretary general that they're interviewing is uh, Takarada is mm-hmm. actually a zillion impersonating him. Right. And apparently, because apparently the zillions didn't do their homework and find out yeah. the name of the dog. They, I, I highly doubt that they were actually doing this, but there, there is a part in. The, the, when the pink, the pink Panther strikes back. 
Mm-hmm. Do you remember that part? I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, Cluzo, Peter Sellers. Mm-hmm. He he goes into this hotel and and uh, he said, "Does your dog bite?" And and the guy's like, "No." And and then he goes to pet this dog, and the dog attacks him, and it <laughs> bites him and stuff. And Peter Sellers is like, "I thought, I thought you said your dog did not bite." And then the guy is this is this German guy, and and the German he's like, "That is not my dog." <laughs> but it made me think of that. <laughs> I can see that because essentially. She she says what? That is not your dog. Yeah, that's is, my dog. That is my dog. Not only but, that, I think she said I think she said her dog was female, and the secretary general is supposed to be a male. Yeah, <laughs> and so I just I feel like they were almost even calling back to that. That that would be a rather oblique reference, but maybe I don't know. <laughs> a lot of people did see that movie at one point. Yes, but it, it was it was an interesting. Uh, I just I, and I like the looks of the dogs too. It's fun to have animals in movies, and it seems like another internet thing to do as well. Yes. It's another it's sort of internet age thing to do. At about 51.54, and that is when our, our big showdown is happening between the Zillions and our protagonist, for the most part, and then that's where the the mutants, their allegiance is changed. Mm-hmm. And we have that moment where the, the camera moves towards them, towards our protagonist's. And then the mutants are outside of the frame. And then after they switch allegiance and it becomes quiet, then the camera pulls back out. And that's a way to do what? It's a way to show that something changed. Yes. It's a very simple way to do that. And it works completely. You don't have to do anything else but that to show that that, that is what happened. Unless this was a Heisei film and then they'd have to tell you. Yeah, we'd have to have someone <laughs> announcing it, yeah. And then shortly after that, we have maybe my favorite scene in the movie, which is at about 53.48, and that is where our we get our mo- motorcycle scene. Yes. <laughs> this is always the part when I'm watching this where I have to remind myself I'm watching a Godzilla movie. <laughs> Just like Mishiro Oshima's music in the Tezuka movies, the music in this scene, it makes the scene like twice as twice as good. Yes, it it works so perfectly well. It's so the music is so utterly different than anything else in a Godzilla movie ever. Yes, and it it it's exciting, energetic. the The video work is good. Yeah, all, all the, the all the crazy choreography is the. They go from having two motorcycles and they're fighting each other in there. Then one of the motorcycles gets taken out and then they're trying to fight each other on the same motorcycle. And they're proving that their boots have really thick soles. And <laughs> mm-hmm. and Ozaki apparently is – well, before that even got started, Ozaki apparently is too cool in BA to even ride in their van. In their, uh, their van. <laughs> He's just yeah, hanging he on, on, on the, the outside. Yeah. <laughs> but th- th- this had to have taken some money. To do this oh, yeah. scene, and, all that wire work and uh huh. It looks like they filmed some of it on location too. Yeah, and it was clearly a closed set on the on a highway. It looks like, mm-hmm. and it's really fantastic for me. I feel like this whole scene it, it made up for that scene in Godzilla versus Megalon with the car chase, <laughs> this movie made up for that. And then it also, it, it only, it only took him 30 years. But. And it also made up for most of the rest of Godzilla versus Megalon too. <laughs> and so I feel like that everything bad about that movie 
got erased by this one scene in this movie. There were legitimate screeching tires in this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they fixed that too. Oh, and well, we even see a weaponized uh, motorcycle tire in this because he spins it around and hits Yeah, him. hitting him with the motorcycle is great. That's <laughs> a great way to end it. But the scene, it's unexpected, but it's a very welcome unexpected scene. And I never would have expected them to put this into a Godzilla movie at all. But it's really great. It's one of my favorite. It's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, and it doesn't even have the monsters in it. I know. But it's it's something that needed to be done, and it's something that it holds up pretty well. Watching that today, yeah, for the most part, it still looks good. It's one of the most thankful things I've been. I don't know if I've ever been so thankful of seeing something in a Godzilla movie before. <laughs> Obviously, all the monster fights in this whole movie are pretty good. I don't have any complaints about any of them, really. My favorite would probably be Mothra versus Second Gigan. Oh, that was great. The way that they ha- the way that Gigan gets killed, particularly, it's is, so funny. Is really cool. The head falls down, and then the the two arm you know, things <laughs> fall down and crash. And well, it's great. Let's forget. He fires off these buzz saws. Yeah, they're they're flying around, yeah. and then he blows up. He blows up Mothra, and then he stands there, does his little Power Ranger pose, and then his own buzzsaws go back and cut off his own head. Yeah, and then Mothra just goes headlong into him and ex- explodes. This is great. Which one's your favorite for all these monster fights? There has to be one. I, I have to admit, it, it, it was a little bit hard for me to pick one, but I think, I think certainly the most entertaining and cathartic is definitely Zilla versus Godzilla. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> as I timed it, I timed it. That f- that fight lasts 15 seconds, <laughs> and it was definitely made for the fans, the oh, diehard yeah. fans that didn't like Godzilla yeah, '98. But- which we, you know, we. If you heard our Godzilla '98 <laughs> episode, then you understand our opinions yeah. on it. Yeah, and th- that one it just it cracks me up so much because they they even they intentionally make Zilla CGI. I even wonder if maybe they make the CGI look a little bit bad on purpose. And then maybe. and then had Zilla, because Toho took the god out of the name, because you see, he took the god out of Godzilla, have him fight Godzilla, who is Tom Kitagawa in the suit. And it amounts to Zilla jumps at him, Zilla tail whips him, he falls into the Sydney Opera House, he blows it up. Mm-hmm. And then it's followed by another one of my favorite lines in the movie, which is the controller throwing this tantrum. And he says, this is the perfect cherry on top of this. And he says, I knew that tuna eating monster was useless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just, like you put that's there for the fans. I just... I was I've joked with you before off the air about how I, I had this funny image in my head of the Japanese Godzilla relaxing at some sort of resort, enjoying his retirement from filmmaking. And then Zilla calls him up to uh, rag on him about how so much cooler he is. And then he finds and then the, the Japanese Godzilla realizes how, how terrible of a movie that he made. And they start bantering back and forth and he says fine we'll settle this like kaiju 2004 Sydney Opera House (laughs) 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 and then it happens and then we know who the real king of the monsters is now definitely there's no uh, problems with with that there's no lack of clarity and I kind of wonder if they even tried to impugn this Godzilla even more because it seems pretty well implied that uh, Zilla ate people 
earlier in the movie. <laughs> right, yeah. So he's not eating fish, he's eating people. So it's like, we're just going to try to make this Godzilla look as unlikable as possible <laughs> so we can just kill him <laughs> and no one will care. We have some, so I think, some really cool reimaginings of some of the of the monsters in this. In particular, <laughs> some of the stuff they do with with your boy Gigan is just absolutely insane at points. That the, might be the best, like most meticulously designed one, the most detail. Yeah, the, 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 all this movement and all the they really reimagined it well. Especially when they have the when they give the guy getting his upgrade and he has the the chainsaws yeah i remember the first time i saw that i'm like oh my gosh are you kidding me but it fits in with the rest of this of this insane of this insane movie yeah it fits in with all the 70s stuff like Gigan is perfect to have in a movie like this yeah (laughs) and and then we we get our our new Ghidorah he's not king Ghidorah he is Kaiser Ghidorah, which I guess means he's an emperor because Kaiser is the German word for emperor. <laughs> and this is, a, it's a four-legged mm-hmm. Ghidorah, which is interesting. They had done that in one of the 90s Mothra movies. There's a, another version of Ghidorah that had four legs, but this is the first time I've seen it in a Godzilla movie, which made it look really interesting. It looks stabler than the previous versions of Ghidorah. Yeah, and it's important that, especially with this movie, it's important that the actors are able to move around in the suits, which is one mm-hmm. reason why the suits look the way they do. Mm-hmm. And I like how in this, Ghidorah's gravity beams actually manipulate gravity, so they don't just inflict damage. They can actually move stuff around. I wonder if some people who watched it, though, thought of, thought of it as kind of like a Godzilla flying moment, like in Godzilla versus Hedera with Godzilla just being picked up by the beams. Because <laughs> it is the first time this, this has been done. It's different. I'm not totally sold on the look of the new Kaiser Ghidorah. The colors are the colors are weird. Different, I will admit, yeah. Um, I guess it's again they're doing something different. Although you have to admit, the scenes where the where Ghidorah was using the beams to throw Godzilla around still looked better than in Space Godzilla. Yes, definitely. <laughs> it's certainly more interesting to look at, and that fight that he has with Godzilla. That was crazy. I mean, we, we were remarking in our King Ghidorah 91 episode about how brutal Godzilla seemed to be. He's even more brutal than this. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's not just decapitate. He decapitates two of the heads. Yeah. He does, using one head to decapitate. Yeah. The other head. And he yeah. even decapitates. One, he even just grabs one of the heads and makes it shoot one of the others. I'm like, dang, <laughs> savage. But it's a better, Ghidorah fight with Godzilla then in Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. Cause Ghidorah, oh, yeah. <laughs> the, our Kaiser Ghidorah and the Monster X before, they last longer. Yes. They're tougher enemy. And so it's it's yeah, it's definitely Godzilla's toughest enemy in the movie. Which yes. that should always be the case. Yeah. He really. was the final boss. Yeah. It's just like and just like it's a like Japanese a video game. Yeah, just like a Japanese video game. And they you were going the off of and... uh, some of the vi- the video games with mm-hmm. this, the actual Godzilla video games, which mm-hmm. they integrated parts of that in. And mm-hmm. just like they integrated in so much stuff from the Showa mm-hmm. series and, and all this other stuff that they keep calling back to. The only reason why they didn't have Mecha Godzilla in this was because the previous two movies had him. Yeah. And so that's the only reason why they didn't have that so but mm-hmm. th- that would have been yet another 70s aspect of the mm-hmm. movies back in it but yeah the overall the, the the new suits for all of these kaiju they look pretty good it all mixes in quite well mm-hmm. and i heard that 
this was one of Tom Kitagawa's favorite suits to, uh, was to work in because it was lighter and this was the only one he ever wore where he could actually move his head yeah so he could actually look around mm-hmm. so it's kind of like kind of like the batman costumes for a long time the bat the, the actor inside the suit couldn't move his head so it, they mm-hmm. they coined what they called the bat turn which he kind of just move his whole torso yeah. to move around and then when they got to the dark knight finally he was able to move his head mm-hmm. I, do you think that the godzilla suit from this one or the previous movie look better? I'm not 100% sure because I like them both. I'm more on board with the way they look, the way that Godzilla looked in the Tezuka movies. I can actually. understand. I can understand, though, that obviously this Godzilla is going to look different in this movie because they need him to do different stuff, be more physical, etc. And if you're going to make it out of lighter material, then that is going to box you in a little bit as to how the monster looks in, in the final product. So well, I'll give it that. Well, it's not like I think it's ugly or anything. I think it looks quite good, actually. But Well, the, the ironic thing is, is that this Godzilla is 100 meters tall, just like the Heisei movie mm-hmm. Godzilla. But he can move around a heck of a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think I feel like the the scaling was just which is something they did. So until they knew what how big to build the miniatures. Yeah. And they decided to not even bother just making him more massive because you can't make a movie like this and have a slow pondering Godzilla like the Heisei version. And I like, and obviously the, the wrestling and the, and the other physical stuff is great. Mm-hmm. There needs to be, there need to be more of that rather than just beams all the time. And so uh, I'll applaud the movie for that for sure. <laughs> Some of the fight choreography in this is just so crazy. It's entertaining. <laughs> Very entertaining. I mean, it's like, it's the Showa era on steroids. Yeah. I think m- one of my favorite uh, fight moments in this is when Godzilla is fighting Rodan, King Caesar, and Angerus, and they have this point where it looks like they're parodying soccer. Yeah. Because <laughs> they, they they start kicking around Angerus, who can ball up like an armadillo in this. Which is new. Yeah. And he even... God, there's even a point where Godzilla looks like he's jumping to the side, like he's trying to block a shot in yeah. a soccer game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I just love how outlandish the the whole thing is. Let's be honest. This is the best Minya has ever looked. And this is the best Minya's ever been used in any of these movies. Probably. Yeah. Because <laughs> he doesn't look like some, as one guy, uh, I heard one, as, yeah, as I heard one guy put it, uh, he doesn't look like something that McCready would turn a flamethrower on and John Carpenter's the thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually makes a nice little contribution to the story. That's probably one of the more extraneous things in this, all the, the shenanigans it's, that he gets into. It, with- it's odd how we keep getting thrown back to it and how it – that might actually feel like a different movie. Yeah. Come to think of it. Because yeah, that feels probably the most extraneous compared to everything else. Yeah. With him interacting with the kid and his grandfather. Now, it gets paid off at the end. I'll give him that. But it still feels a little bit odd getting there. Everything after our uh, Kaiser fight in our mothership takes place. All the stuff when, as soon as Kumi Mizuno and Akira Takarada come back, everything after that is great. All of the fighting and all of the the, the gun battle and, and all of this, it it was it's well filmed. It mixes in with the kaiju action really well. It's fun to watch. It's it's just exciting. Along with that, the uh, the final shot that we have in this movie, I do think harkens back 
to Terror of Mechagodzilla because we have Godzilla swimming into the sunset. Yeah, it's an, triumphant. Yeah, it's a uh, bookend uh, yeah. attempt. Yeah, nice little bookend, and the even the the closing credits are interesting because it's it's showing clips from the movie. But if you pay close attention, there's actually a few deleted scenes in there. That yeah, they some more of the hetero the stuff that they yeah. deleted. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's there's more hetero stuff because hetero barely makes a cameo mm-hmm. in this. But when you watch the credits, you can see a few more shots of hetero. We get a whole series of scenes that are with regards to the reaction to the zillions being visiting we get this media circus mentality yeah there's they show us a japanese television show that has this this panel of people who are talking about the the recent events and you get several different viewpoints on it. There's a couple of them on there. I think they're supposed to be scientists, so they're looking at it from a scientific point of view. Some of them are talking about how this is going to change our culture. And then there was a woman on there who's just talking. Pop star. It was like a pop star. Yeah. just looking at it from that sort of an angle, mm-hmm. more of a, in a pop cultural sort of sense. But the, the important thing is, is that they're, they get caught up. Mm-hmm. They get caught up in the excitement, and they don't, they don't think. Mm-mm. And there's like two people in, in this that, that, that actually think mm-hmm. like the one scientist is like, you're all nuts. Yeah. Do you realize what's going on? And and they're like, no, no, it's all great. We finally made contact with. But that is probably what would happen because there would only be a few people that would actually be the voice of reason here and they'd be drowned out by all of the noise. Mm-hmm. And that's what I feel like. That's what is being conveyed here. The other thing is, is that Takarada's character there's the assassination attempt. Mm -hmm. That is one thing that would possibly happen is that if you have world, you know, a world leader like this, just totally in the tank for this mysterious alien race that appears that we know nothing about and they just want to cooperate with it. That would alarm people. Yeah. That would alarm people. It would scare people because not everybody's going to say, Oh, how nice. When, when we make contact with aliens, if we ever do. But the oh. thing is, they, they're probably just ignoring us because we're not smart enough yet to be paid attention to. But yeah. the, the, the other thing is, is that, yeah, the, I believe that probably would happen. And, and it, it almost is the guy that attempts, makes this assassination attempt. Is he pretty much right? The well, stuff that he says. Yeah. After, well, and that's that isn't crazy to say stuff like yeah, that. Well, he said you're a pawn of them. And he's right. He's right. Well, and that's the thing that's interesting about that guy is he seems to be coming across as crazy. Like he's some nutty conspiracy theorist sort of guy who's paranoid. But he's right. Yeah. And you know, he just managed to sneak in there and, you know, be crazy and try to and pull off this assassination. He almost does it. But is he being crazy? At this point, he's he's probably you could argue he's not because, yeah, because he's right. Yeah, he's right. And from that position, if you have somebody who's that in the tank for all this stuff, that that makes that make a lot of people suspicious. Yes, and they and, I think they would have every would, right there, to be. And there would be a lot of people saying at least spend some more time figuring out who these people are and what they want because when aliens visit, you know they they want something. Yeah, which is. Actually, in some ways, not unlike what happens in Astro Monster as well, except in that one, they just get delivered an ultimatum. Yeah. Like, would people have been skeptical about Glenn and the astronauts and, and et cetera? Probably, yeah. But it's it's an interesting plot dynamic to have that. Mm-hmm. But the, the media frenzy is just 
this assassination attempt is almost within the context of the media frenzy. Yeah. The interview between this dude and this DJ, he seems like a guy who the Japanese know already. And he's a personality that's been around, but then he's dressing up like a zillion and calling himself X as part of just popularity and just caught up in the media frenzy. And that's Mm -hmm. why the DJ is like, Oh really? X. Okay. Yeah. And he just goes with it. (laughs) It seems like the sort of thing you would expect is there would probably would be people who would embrace the aliens as these new paragons of culture or something. And they would mimic what they're, how they dress. And yes, all this media circus stuff, it seems like a big cautionary tale. It does. Well, it's redoing the theme from Astro Monster. Yeah. You should the, be skeptical of newcomers. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that in a movie that is as insane and over the top as this is, that there are scenes like this in the movie to, to help give it a little bit of grounding. Yeah. Gives the movie a bit more substance. Yeah, you have to, you have to undergird all of this insanity with something. Yes. And they do a good job at that. And the themes that they have are big themes, but they're, they're not necessarily uh, full of meat or whatever, but it's at least you're getting your point across well. Yeah. And I know some of our listeners may take umbrage with me saying this, but in a lot of ways, I actually do think Final Wars is better than Destroy All Monsters, in particular because the characters in Final Wars are much more memorable, I think, than in Destroy All Monsters. Final Wars actually has clearly stated themes, whereas there really wasn't a whole lot of that going on in Destroy All Monsters. Destroy All Monsters was just action. Yeah. And this was a little bit more, yeah, there's probably a little bit more undergirding this, actually, than there is Destroy All Monsters. One way that you can tell that it's 2044 is, is because that might be how long it takes for us to get a Japanese Secretary General of the United Nations. <laughs> Maybe not even then. You'd probably have to create the Space Nations first in order to get a, a Japanese Secretary General. Oh, and that know. worked out so well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh. That's another funny thing about this. Well, let's get our few negatives that we have out of the way here. Uh, first, I'll ask you a question, Brian, since we talk about this a lot. What did you think about the length of this movie? Because this is, outside of the of Godzilla 98, this is the longest Godzilla movie so far. It's 125 minutes. I feel like somewhere in there, you can, you can take five minutes off. It might be difficult, though, with the way that the story's progression is from one point to the next. It, it's, if you take out part of that, it might end up not working. Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, the scenes with Minya and the, the kid and his grandfather seem a little bit extraneous, but then it pays off at the end. So, I mean, if yeah. you took those scenes out, it would come out of nowhere. Right. You can't have that. Yeah. And you certainly shouldn't. I don't think you should cut anything in the, the monster fights. They're no. already they're already can't do that. Yeah. They're already fans who complain that they think that the monster fights in this are too short, mm-hmm. which which I'm not sure is a fair criticism because there's actually some really short fights in some of the Showa films, but yeah. One thing I would say is a negative is the fact that this movie was videoed rather than filmed. I've seen the Blu-ray for this as well as the DVD. And one, there's no difference in picture quality between those two things, but also it seems fuzzy 
But it's just the, the fact that it was videoed doesn't help the picture quality overall. And upscaling it does nothing. I understand that it's cheaper to do video than it is to do film, but I, I can tell that that's how this movie was made. Did you see that one of the criticisms of this movie is that, is that the tone of the movie changes too much? Yeah, I've heard about that. I understand where they're coming from on that. I believe the Minya stuff might be the most that's off, that mo- yeah. the biggest thing that throws it mm-hmm. off. Definitely. Um, it's not like I don't believe this movie has a chronic problem with the tone changing back and forth too much. But no. there, there is some. Yeah. Do you know how many times the controller of Planet X says cattle? I lost count. Ten. Oh, you counted? Yes. It must be his favorite word. It, it appears to be. And I have the timestamps, too. I was timestamping oh through all this. I'm not going to give you them, but it is ten. And then our protagonist says it once when he says, we're not cattle, we're humans. Yeah. But then, so that's more of a response than yeah. it is bringing it up on his own. Yeah. yeah I, I, uh, I feel like you could have removed five of those, but I don't know. It does it's get a little a, excessive after a while. It's slightly grating. Yeah. We talked about in the previous episode about how good the CGI looked in Tokyo SOS. And I have to admit that there are points where the, the CGI in this was not all of it, but there are points where it was less impressive. In particular, when Cosmos flying that fighter plane into the mothership, mm-hmm. I was a little disappointed because I was thinking back to the fighter planes in Tokyo SOS and they looked better. Yeah. <laughs> It might end up just being a negative for for me for that whole scene. This is the only time that I've seen Godzilla consciously mimic Star Wars. It took a very long time for the Godzilla series to do this, finally. Mm -hmm. I hope that that's all that there is. Yeah. Although I did... I want want Star Wars in my Star Wars. I don't want Star Wars in my Godzilla. (laughs) Although I did like the music in that sequence. That was pretty cool. Yeah. To transition from our our, ne- our sort of few negatives that we had about this, that where we where we do understand some of the fans about why why they feel what they feel about this movie and not being totally positive, but I don't believe this is a negative or a positive. But did you notice how other cultures are treated in this movie, particularly the scenes when the monsters appear the first time, and we have our global <laughs> attack? We, we have some. Interesting stereotypes <laughs> going on, and yeah, the, the thing is though, even though they make fun of stuff a little bit and they use stereotypes, they do make fun of themselves as well, mm-hmm. which is so it's all on an even playing field, which I'm glad about because if they had just imp- had stereotypes and not had. What I'm particularly thinking of the Japanese making fun of themselves is the couple watching television. Yes. <laughs> and they're so like non-reactive to everything. Yeah. <laughs> and the, you know, the alien pops out of there and they're like, Oh, <laughs> and I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. But the stuff that I thought was the funniest was our Canadian kid. And he's like got <laughs> chocolate over all over his mouth. He's and he's a, essentially like a little brat. He's a punk. He's, he's a little brat playing with his kaiju toys with all his day kaiju long. Toys, and he throws one of them into the fire. I'm like, Which is Gamera. 
It was? Yes. He Oops. throws yeah, he throws Gamera and he calls it a loser. Oh. So you know what they were doing there. Oh jeez. But yeah, the the Cana- the Canadian ones rather unflattering. Yeah, he, it's uh, unflattering. I'd, I'd rather be the yeah. dude in the mobile home park in Arizona, the American. <laughs> I'd I'd rather be that guy in um, of in that stereotype rather than the Canadian stereotype. Yeah, and it's just all I can think is what kid would destroy one of his own action figures like that. I mean, I wouldn't little, have, but it was very bratty. Yeah. And very bratty. Noon, so, yeah. But I, I, the funniest one for me though, is the New York scene. That's all I keep thinking is do the uh, Japanese really think this is what New York is like. It, it's how has the scene aged other than <laughs> taking place in New York? There's really, I feel like either this has aged badly or perhaps this scene has aged perfectly <laughs> and that it, it is actually more accurate now <laughs> than it may have been in 2004. It almost New York city isn't known for capital V violence now. No other cities are some cities, but also the, the tension between African-Americans and the police. Yeah, actually the, I hadn't thought of that. It, oh my! <laughs> yeah, with with Black Lives Matter, et cetera, all the attention over the past few years that has been going on. Oh boy! I, it made me think of that. Uh, it was rather inescapable to think of that. Otherwise, I'm looking at that thinking this looks more like something you would see in a '90s. Movie. And originally, these two actors, the cop and our um, our pimp? punk, pimp? our pimp, yeah, whatever pimp essentially, yeah. he, and he, uh, the the two guys, they were trying out for opposite parts, mm-hmm. and then they were switched. Huh. So it was actually the white dude who was, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I thought, oh, okay. Huh. Interesting. But yeah, th- that scene particularly is very uh, interesting. I still found it funny. It's probably not quite politically correct, but it was still funny. They were, they were going for funny. Yeah. Funny little observation. You get to the end of the movie and they're trying to get the Gotango out of the mothership before it explodes. And that one guy falls over and breaks his shoulder mm-hmm. so he he was the pilot and he says i can't do it and he tells miyuki to do it i wrote in my notes you know miyuki doesn't get to pilot the gotango for very long but she still does a better job than emmy did in mecha Ghidorah. yeah <laughs> and all she did was back the ship up mm-hmm. and i have to admit at the end when godzilla is approaching our protagonist and captain gordon actually gets out his katana and goes into a defensive stance and i'm thinking Okay, you're Captain Gordon. You obviously think that you're tough enough to beat Godzilla yourself. Yeah. I'm not going to stand in your way. Because <laughs> you're Captain Gordon and you're that cool. Yeah. And now to close out part two, since we adhere at Kaiju Vision Radio, love MST3K so much, you mentioned that your favorite fight scene was the, was Mothra versus Gigan. And yeah, specifically Gigan getting uh, completely uh, wasted. Yeah. And then when I saw it, I wrote out what I thought could potentially have been Mothra's last words as she does her final run on Gigan there. And I thought I would share them with, uh, with you and the rest of our listeners. My apologies in advance if you don't like puns. <laughs> All right, so we have, This moth is on fire! Surprise, mother trucker! Burn, baby, burn! I regret nothing! Flame on! 
I'm not quite dead yet. You're fired. This is for Godzilla versus Megalon. And then finally, Fukuda sends his regards. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in case you didn't, anybody didn't know that, Fukuda was the one who created Gaiden. Yes. <laughs> All right, enough of this nonsense. Let's move on to part three. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we discuss an issue or issues that were either going on at the time the film was released or they were brought up by the film itself. And for this episode, we chose Abenomics. The issues that brought on Abenomics were uh, going on economically at this point in time in Japan. Abenomics itself was not implemented until several years after this. But since we have such a huge gap between movies, we felt it was important to bring up some stuff that was going on in, t- in the interim. Yes, this is a very big gap. Yeah, in fact, it's 10 the, years. Yeah, it's even yeah. a bigger gap than between the Showa series and the Heisei series. Yeah, because the Toho intended this to be the, the last Godzilla film that they were going to make for at least 10 years. Yeah, uh, we, we do want to get some more economics in. Now, in our last episode for Tokyo SOS, episode 34, we talked about deflation and the other economic issues that were going on in Japan at that time. And we talked about the economic factors that contributed to what Japan has been going through with low GDP growth and a lot of other problems that they've been having. Depopulation. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've focused on depopulation too, within the context of uh, deflation, all of these issues that we mentioned in the, uh, the previous episode, Abenomics is being billed as the cure to all of those problems. What you're trying to do is we're trying to reverse the deflationary cycle. And you basically are changing all of those elements of the deflation cycle and you're turning it into something that you hope will turn things around. But that has proven to be quite difficult. One thing that I want to try to think about here is, is this, is Abenomics, are we just rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic or not? I think that's a good question to ask, (laughs) especially after the stuff we went over last week. It's a little bit depressing. Yeah, it's a situation you don't want to be in, and you want to try to get out of it, but the the answer to all of this is very complex. Yeah. Abenomics has been going on for about uh, six, seven years now. About 2012, I think, is when it was implemented. Yeah, December 2012 was when the second Abe round of Abe came into office mm-hmm. as prime minister. He ran on these issues, and as we are recording this podcast right now, uh, Prime Minister Abe is still in office and is on track to become the longest serving prime minister in Japan's history. Mm -hmm. In our previous episode, we mentioned the downward spiral of deflation. We're going to review over that really quick uh, so we can get everybody on the same page. First, we have lower prices for goods and services, and that is deflation. You have decreasing prices, and that leads to a smaller cash flow and smaller profits for companies because they're not able to charge as much for those goods. And then not as much stuff is bought, and then there's a reduction in in production, which means that uh, businesses are going to have to lay off people in order to to stay afloat. Then that leads to increased unemployment, because they let people go, and then those people, because they have less money, they spend less on goods and services, which leads to an oversupply of goods and services. What would happen then? Prices go down. 
in order to sell those goods. And so it, it and then it goes to smaller cash flow and profit for the companies. So it's a downward spiral and all of these things reinforce each other. And now we'll go over Albinomics and exactly what steps are being taken to try to reverse this uh, hellacious downward spiral that uh, Japan uh, has continuously been in for uh, far too long. The strategy is in Albinomics it was what's called the the three arrows. Mm-hmm. The first of which is monetary easing. Yes, aggressive monetary policy. Some of the tools that the government is using to try to how to dispel the deflation mindset. First, you have the government print more currency. And so what are you doing? You're increasing the supply of money. And that is an attempt to get people to borrow more and for banks to make more loans. But when you're creating the money supply, that you're also attempting to create inflation. Because when the money supply goes up, that means you're, that there's supposed to be inflation occurring. And there is a, an inflation target of 2%. Here. Yeah, but well, we ran into Japan's, that a lot last week. Yeah, and Japan's not hitting that 2% mark, even though they're flooding everything with cash by printing more. And there, another thing behind that is that it devalues the yen as well. And that's one thing that almost immediately happened when Abe came into office in 2012 was the, uh, the yen was devalued. Uh, another tool that they use in aggressive monetary policy is monetary easing, which is a quantitative easing, mm-hmm. buying bonds. And so mm-hmm. you, you you buy uh, government bonds, and that is an attempt to uh, give the economy some juice as well. The second arrow is fiscal stimulus. Yes, or uh, other words, flexible fiscal policy. And and what you're trying to do is, is uh, give another jolt uh, in a different form. So with this, you're trying to stimulate demand and you're trying to stimulate consumption. And uh, you're trying to get growth in GDP as a result of this because you're trying to get more economic activity. And there's also the uh, fiscal stimulus, like economic stimulus packages. Mm-hmm. I was about to say that, that sounds like what, the, what we're talking about here. Yeah, and so increased government spending in order to uh, give more juice to the economy. Yeah. And then finally, we have structural reforms. These are things like reforming regulations to make it more make more sense for businesses that are trying to grow. And then there are also special economic zones with foreign staff. There are immigrants who are brought in and then they work oh. on Japanese land. Hmm. But it's not; it's considered a special economic zone, and that is a, a, a way to get more foreigners in to work. Hmm. An attempt has been made to try to get make it easier for companies to fire bad workers. Hmm. That's another way to make things more efficient. One macro thing that Japan is trying to do as well to to create growth would be to join the TPP trade agreement, mm, the Trans-Pacific mm-hmm. Partnership. That's been in the news a lot lately. Yeah, and that is an attempt to create more free trade, which will make Japan more competitive in international markets. Mm-hmm. And so that's a way to increase exports. Mm-hmm. Going back to devaluing the yen, that was also an attempt to increase exports because then J- Japanese products are cheaper when uh, converted to other currencies. Mm-hmm. And so that's an attempt to boost economic activity in that manner. However, there are some significant downsides, possibly, to having these policies. 
the first one is if you're going to devalue the yen, make your currency weaker, you're increasing your own exports, but what? You're making the imports a lot more expensive. Yes. One of those things would definitely be fuel. Yeah, well, that's a huge issue. Energy, because Japan has very little of an, of an energy market of its own. So that makes fuel imports like natural gas, etc., coal, that it makes that more expensive. Mm-hmm. And it, but and other things that the Japanese have to import, it makes those products more expensive. It it undermines a- economic activity. With fiscal stimulus, that's a problem too because even though you're aggressively spending to try to give more juice to the economy from the government spending effort, what is the downside of that? You're creating more debt. Mm-hmm. which Japan has the highest debt-to-GDP ratio in the entire world, they're put in a position of, oh, we need to actually do what? We need to increase government revenue and reduce spending. But if you pull back on government spending, then that hurts the possibility of creating more growth. Yet another catch-22 they find themselves in. By doing these economic stimulus packages and increasing government spending, they're actually hastening the possibility that the government will run into a fiscal crisis. Some of the information that we found stated that a fiscal crisis in Japan would occur around the year 2020. We'll see if that is true or not, but that is not good news. No. And one of the methods that Japan has used over the last couple of decades to make this revenue is they've increased their consumption tax, essentially their sales tax. And it's gone from 3% to 5%. Then it went from 5% to 8%. And now there are those trying to increase it to 10%. And that's been seeing a lot of opposition. It's a very popular issue in elections to say, if you vote for us, we won't raise the consumption tax. It's a big advantage for them to say that they're going to get votes that way. Yeah. Because nobody wants a higher consumption tax. But the thing is, you have to try to cover the revenue shortfall with something. Mm-hmm. But it's extremely hard because there is a direct relationship in between raising the consumption tax and lower demand. Yeah. Which low demand is one of the biggest reasons why there is deflation in Japan, mm-hmm. is because there's weak demand across the board. There's no lending. There's not as much borrowing. Things are stagnant. Things aren't moving around. The velocity of money in Japan, it's like off kilter. So people are not spending as much money, and in turn, they're not making the revenue. A long-term problem that Japan has had to deal with is decrease in wages, and particularly decrease in real wages. When you have lower wages coming in, you're going to spend less. The behavior of, of any, that's just about the behavior of anybody in that circumstance. And so there's been pressure to try to raise wages. Well, that's really a problem. For one, if you're going to cut taxes for corporate taxes, that means that the, that, that company then saves money. However, it is not guaranteed that they are going to use that money to increase wages or to hire anybody new because the governments can't make them do that. There's been a lot of pressure to, to increase wages, and that's what they're being told to do. But companies often pocket the money and then use it to help themselves out, or they just spend it on stuff like publicity and all this other stuff. So there's no guarantee that that happens, but there is, there's pressure to create regulations that actually would say 
that they have to do that, which if you're somebody who wants a laissez-faire approach to business, that's crazy invasive for the government to say, no, if we're going to give you this tax cut, you have to spend it on hiring people or you have to raise your wages. It's a pretty radical approach. One way that they're trying to sell Abenomics is that if they are able to lift themselves into more economic growth, they would be able to spend more money on defense and they would be less reliant on the United States for defense. And that's actually one of the parallels that Abe supporters have drawn between Abenomics and the Meiji era policy that was called Fukoku Kyohei, which when translated means enrich the country, strengthen the army. I think it's their way of saying that there's a a, a, a wee bit of nationalism in this plan. And that might be a reaction to the rise of China because there's too much competition for the stuff that Japan makes. And is there stuff being made in China and South Korea and Taiwan? There's the pressure to lower prices for Japanese exports just so that in order to do what? To try to beat other companies that are able to produce stuff more cheaply. Mm-hmm. And so that's another contributor to the um, lower prices occurring. Mm-hmm. We mentioned in our previous episode about depopulation, and this is another long-term factor that Japan's having to deal with that makes deflation more likely and hurts the prospect of Abenomics helping anything. When you have a lower population, especially a lower working population, you end up having lower demand. Because when there are less workers, there's less work. It's really that simple. And when there's a lower population, there's lower demand. Low demand is one of the biggest reasons why Japan is where it is now. It's just another headwind uh, against the Japanese economy. The disaster that occurred at Fukushima is another thing that hurt the Japanese economy. Because Very badly. It, yeah, it reduced Japan's ability to produce its own energy. And plus, you're, un- you're making unemployed most of the people that worked at those locations as well. And so it increases the amount of energy that Japan has to buy from other people and from other countries. And so it makes Japan more dependent on uh, and, at the, and at the mercy of energy prices. Mm-hmm. Which is something we've discussed in a previous episode. There's something to be said about the damage that raising the consumption tax does. It's a tax that everybody has to pay, no matter what class they're from and no matter what their income is. You're reducing equality in society by doing that. It's one major uh, problem with consumption tax increases. The other thing is, is that tax increases alone can cause a recession. It's such a bad idea to raise the consumption tax, but there's so much pressure to, to raise it. And it's really darn if you do, darn if you don't. There's no good answer. Something I thought was interesting was old people in Japan who receive Social Security, they apparently just save a lot of this money. But the thing is, you would hope that as much of that money as possible is spent in the, in the economy buying stuff. Mm-hmm. But instead, it's not really. One solution that they've been looking at is if they recognize an elderly person as rich enough, then they would reduce the Social Security that they get so that the elderly can start using more of their savings and spending that. Hmm. And then it would lower the amount of government spending. 
I'm sure that's a generational conflict right there if there ever was (laughs) one. (laughs) But it's all about trying to figure out how to make people change their economic behaviors. And it's just like I said with the corporate with corporations and saying, no, if we're if we give you money, you have to do X, Y, and Z, like hiring somebody, you have to increase wages this much of a percentage with the money that we discount you, et cetera. It's There's very, only so much you can do. Yeah, it's very difficult to get people and corporations to change how they do things, especially after they've been doing it that way for as long as they have. Yeah, and in Japan it's hard to convince people to spend the money that they have a lot of the time that contributes to the economic downturn and it's hard to make banks lend money to people and like to make people take risks. And it's hard to get, it's hard to get people to borrow more money and take risks themselves in order to upgrade something, build something new, etc. There's not as much lending and there's not as much borrowing. And that what that does is it increases the velocity of money in Japan when you do more loans and, uh, and more uh, borrowing. But nobody's taking any risks. That's the problem. B- companies aren't hiring, and every, everybody is in a risk aversion mode. The results of Abenomics and all these measures over these years has been mixed. There has been some economic growth that Japan has been able to sort of eke out uh, for uh, a couple of years here, which mm-hmm. is good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still not very high economic growth. No. And it's, um, it's a little bit sketchy. Like in uh, in 2016, it went back down. Unemployment went down slightly. Yes, that, that is was good. good. Yeah, and there are more women and elderly men who are coming into the workforce. And so that has been somewhat of a help. Companies and, and pri- private investment has gone up. One thing that is bad is that inflation has not come even near the target. And so even though they're printing all this money, even though they're doing quantitative easing, and uh, they're increasing the money supply, all, all these things devaluing the yen, that still has not created inflation. The tools that they have in order to create inflation have only a limited effect o- overall. And it seems like these tools don't work like they should anymore because they've been maxed out. There's been a debate about how possibly Tokyo has received more benefits of Abenomics than the rest of the country. And I can see how that's somewhat true. We saw some information where the government tells smaller cities the worker, the job to worker ratio is uh, in that part of Japan compared to what it used to be. And well, the comeback of that is well, all of our young people are leaving our town, and so that's why there are less workers to jobs now. Is that there are less people because smaller cities and especially villages are depopulating. There has been a huge effort, like Nate said, to try to delay uh, increases in the consumption tax. The country overall, opinion-wise, is very much against the uh, consumption tax, and they feel like it works against all the stuff that Abenomics is trying to do. In fact, in a, in a poll taken in January 2014, 70% of the respondents said that they planned on decreasing their spending because of the consumption tax. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of the Japanese, they say that they don't see Abenomics helping anything. It's because there are so many long-term trends that are that produce a massive headwind against the Japanese economy. Now, there are lots of parts of Europe that are under a recession, actually, but if you... Uh, th- th- there was a report that came out that said that Japan and Europe are not doing as well economically, 
they're either in recession or it's very, very low growth. And they said, even though the United States is experiencing some increase in GDP, the United States alone cannot raise global GDP enough to make that enough of a difference there. You have to have more growth in Japan. You have to have more growth in Europe. It's proven difficult for Japan and Europe to be able to even catch up to the United States, which even though we're not in a recession right now, our, our growth is still a bit lackluster, even though consumer confidence is through the roof still. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the results of Abenomics have been as Brian said, small or mixed. In that same poll I mentioned uh, earlier, 73% of the respondents said that they hadn't seen any effects from Abinomics in their own personal lives and finances. And only 28% said that they expected to see a pay raise anytime soon. They were hoping for some big changes and people just aren't noticing. In the year 2020, It'll be a possibly pivotal year for Japan because that is when they are projected at least to uh, have a fiscal crisis. And this wouldn't be something like Greece. It would be something in that would definitely be a more Japanese in nature. But uh, the debt-to-GDP ratio is so high in Japan, and the government spending can only last so long. And there's going to be a breaking point where there's a fiscal crisis and then possible measures of austerity, where there would be a big cutback in government spending and as well as possibly an increase in consumption taxes again. And so we're going to see a contraction of government spending, which that will be bad for GDP growth because and it would also make people spend less. Now, if they cut Social Security and other measures like that in order to lower spending as well, that th- they might have to do that. And so Japan is going to reach a point where they're going to have to figure out what to do. And it might be like an increase in taxes, a decrease in Social Security, and a continuance as much as possible of the economic stimulus packages. You know, just to try to keep putting more government money into the economy to try to get growth. But it's going to get difficult and. 2020 will be our Japanese uh, Tokyo Summer Olympics, but it'll be a busy year in 2020, I'm sure, and Japan is in a very difficult situation. That's what we've attempted to get across as much as possible, and that way everybody has a, a sort of feeling about what the Japanese are going through. Even though they're the third largest economy in the world, they have a lot of problems. Japan is in a later stage of development than China is. When you when you get this late into industrialized, you know, historical development and you get all of all of the necessary government spending that that bogs things down and you you, you have to figure out what to do. And we hope that Japan does figure out what to do and we hope that they can uh, get out of this as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, I do not want to see Japan vanish at this point, which is something I, I, I've been a little bit concerned about, especially after researching for this podcast. Yes, and and, the, and getting growth in Japan is important because that helps the uh, GDP of the world increase. And it's hard to do it without Japan and also without Europe. Mm-hmm. One other event that occurred in Japan in between 2004 and 2014, besides the, the Great East Japan earthquake, is that 2009 was the first year of negative population growth Mm -hmm. in Japan. 
so far the most negative that we've seen things go is negative 0.1%. And that is uh, actually what they had last year, too. Um, and so this is a another trend, even though it's not uh, a massive depopulation, it is uh, definitely the error is going out of the uh, balloon. Yeah, and my concern would be that it's only going to increase as time goes on. It's small now, but it'll get bigger later, especially as the population continues to age. All right, one last thing before we move on is we got to get all those economic figures in the 10 years between movies. In 2004, the year this movie was released, uh, Japanese economic growth was 2.36%, which is the highest since 2000. Not bad. In 2005, uh, economic growth in Japan was 1.30%. In 2006, 1.69%. In 2007, 2.19%. In 2008, it was minus 1.04%. Ouch. In, uh, during, because of the worldwide economic slump and what is called as, as the, the Lehman crisis, a lot of countries got hit. And Japan, uh, their economic growth was negative 5.52% for that year. In 2010, uh, growth was 4.65%. In 2011, negative 0.45%. In 2012, 1.75%. In 2013, 1.61%. At least they bounced back quite a bit from uh, the 2009 uh, crisis that occurred. Uh, but still, uh, they cannot reach 2% uh, yet up to the, the point that we get our next movie. We would like to dedicate this episode to the great Akira Takarada. Who, for many, is the Japanese Cary Grant. He definitely has a an old Hollywood sort of vibe to him, except he's obviously from Japan. He was only 19 years old when he was in the first Godzilla movie playing Ogata. Mm-hmm. He went on to do five more Godzilla movies. The 1964 Mothra 1965's Invasion of Astro Monster, 1966 Ebira Horror of the Deep, or Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, Mothra and Godzilla, The Battle for Earth, or Godzilla vs. Mothra in 1992, mm -hmm. and in our movie today, of course, Final Wars. Mm -hmm. He was also obviously in 1956's uh, King of the Monsters, very good actor. Uh, and I, I especially love this part that he did in, in this movie today. Yes. I, I really liked it. It looks like he was enjoying himself. And you know that any time that he's been in these movies, the fan base just loves it. Oh, yeah. They go nuts. And that's why you and I, and I'm sure everyone else, is looking forward to seeing him at G-Fest 25. Yes. In the wonderful city of Rosemont, Illinois, at the Crown Plaza Hotel. Mm-hmm. Next time on Kaiju Vision Radio, Godzilla returns to the United States in Gareth Edwards' Godzilla from 2014. And with that, we will say goodbye for now, and we will see you later for Godzilla 2014. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music. 
www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara.